Welcome to the In Awe Podcast, where we amplify women by sharing their unique stories and empower a community through the mission and their message. I am your host, Sarah Johnson, a former school teacher and principal turned author and entrepreneur, living my own leap of faith on a mission to teach masses. Each week, we will feature stories from women who will leave us all in awe of their impact on our world. Welcome back to the In Awe Podcast and our final episode for this incredible series on leadership. Today's guest is a special person who works with great passion and perseverance with a wide range of audiences, and I am so excited for the In Awe community to hear from her today. Huda Aisa is a TEDx speaker with the, and the author of the motivational children's book, Teach Us Your Name, focused on empowering children to take pride in their many identities while showing respect for themselves and others. Another culturally authentic and responsive book that she has written is Common Threads, Adam's Day at the Market. She is currently writing for education professionals focusing on overcoming limitations of unconscious bias in order to best serve their school communities so that staff and students and families can reach their greatest potential for success in our ever-changing world. Additionally, she is the producer of a series of short films focused on the matters of social justice. Huda has positively influenced countless communities across the nation through her engaging and thought-provoking learning opportunities. She utilizes her extensive experience as a cultural competence consultant, former teacher, and English language development specialist to support organizations in successfully meeting their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. In her keynote presentations and interactive learning opportunities, she works closely with teachers, school site leaders, school district officials, and higher education professionals to help them develop practices and cultures that promote cultural competence, engagement, unity, and academic achievement. Huda also works with students, parents, and community members in order to engage the entire village so as to reach maximum current and future growth and success. Furthermore, her work extends to supporting professionals in businesses, corporations, and nonprofit organizations. Her belief is that the learning needed to work towards social justice is a lifelong education that can be applied to virtually all ages, social identities, and careers. Her explorations include international travel to gain insight from the communities around the globe in order to share and apply the learning with U.S. audiences. In today's episode, we learn more from Huda's story of embracing her own identity, as well as her work to help others overcome their own challenges of implicit bias. Huda provides such grace-filled wisdom and insight around several important topics, and our conversation has me thinking more deeply about power dynamics in our country. She is brilliant, friends. We also discuss her journey to embrace her own identity as a Muslim woman in America, and I know there's a true mission in Huda's message for us all today. She is a precious sister to me who has blessed me so deeply, and I am so excited and honored to share her with you and amplify for you Huda Aisa's leadership story. Welcome Huda Aisa to the In Awe podcast. I am so happy to have you here and especially to feature you on this series. So welcome, my friend. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you, Sarah. Huda, it would just shock me if my listeners did not know who you are. But if they don't, would you do us all a favor and just share a little bit about who you are and what you're up to in this wonderful world of ours? Well, let's begin with I'm a former teacher and former English language development specialist. So I worked in schools and would oversee programs for English language learners, immigrants and refugees. And uh, that led me into my current career as a speaker, an author, and a consultant focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, instilling uh, culturally responsive practices in schools and also for businesses and corporations. I do that work through uh, keynote speaking engagements with uh, large audiences and facilitating interactive learning opportunities and smaller group settings, to consulting on organizational equity plans, reviewing books, 
uh, to ensure that diverse representation is present and that biases and stereotypes are not unknowingly perpetuated in the text. And then writing my own books focused on embracing diversity and inclusion. You know, there's so many things that I do. So it's always hard for me to try to like explain in a paragraph. That's what I'm trying to give myself as a paragraph. Well, that's awesome. And so I'm glad that you were able to share with us just, you know, like expanding upon that impressive bio that I was able to read at the beginning. And there's just so many levels to you. And I'm so fascinated by you, Huda. And so featuring you on this series on leadership got me thinking about how we could make sure to emphasize, you know, like tease apart all of these wonderful things that you do in our world, but really bring it down to that that space of you as a woman leader in this world, following your passion and impacting others through all those avenues, I think you just have so much to share on that whole lens. So that's where we'll try to focus our conversation today. So a couple of things that I want to make sure we get to is one, can you just talk? I love the story of how you came up with and decided to take your teaching experience and go into becoming a published author. Can you speak a little bit about maybe your first two books and maybe the one you're working on now, because that's a whole pathway for you to lead and model and influence others through that, basically that medium of authoring. Thank you. So I I think that, you know, a lot of um, the reasons for why I wrote those books were based on my own experiences Uh, from childhood through adulthood and being an educator myself. Uh, So my first children's book that I wrote, uh, Teach Us Your Name, really began with my own childhood of being very ashamed of my name, uh, which I've learned to be very proud of now. But as a child, I really hated my name and I really didn't want to draw any attention to it. And I wanted to change my name. And As I got older, I realized that my name is very symbolic of identities that are really important to me. And the the meanings of my name are really important to me. You know, my name is Arabic. Uh, The first, my first name, Hoda, is Arabic for guidance. And it's interesting because I became an educator. And I think that's what we do is guide, you know. And uh, my middle name is my dad's name, which is Musa, which is actually Moses in Arabic. And my last name, Isa, is Jesus uh, in Arabic. And those are two major role models in my life. And uh, I just, I really wish that I would have had the confidence to talk about those things as a child. So uh, for myself and really for my classmates and my teachers too, because they could learn something, you know, from talking about our name. So I really insisted upon doing that with my students. When I became a classroom teacher, I didn't want anyone to feel awkward about their names. So I really wanted them to tell me how their families would say their name, to teach me to pronounce their names the way their parents did. And it wasn't always easy. You know, there are sounds that are present in other languages, but they're not present in the English language, which can make it difficult for us to pronounce some sounds. But I did the best that I could. Mm. And it was such an amazing experience because these kids really started to, first of all, gain more confidence in their names and the identities that those names represented 
on their cultures as well. And then other people in the school, other staff and other students also started picking up on that pronunciation where some kids' names were being mispronounced for years. And they picked up on it and started saying their names correctly. And they say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I was mispronouncing it. Uh, And then they worked on it. And then kids started taking more of an interest in learning about other students' names. And one of the really neat outcomes were that even my students who only spoke English and no other languages, from learning their peers' different names, they were picking up on language sounds from other languages, and they were actually able to say them really fluently, which, you know, comes easy for kids. So it's really cool that that's something that they could tap into in the future. Uh, But we just learned so much from our names, and I still find that today, even working with adults. So I think it's a way to start a conversation with people in a way that's comfortable for most of us, because there, we all have a name and there's usually a story behind that name, whether it's, you know, representing our family history or our family culture. You know, maybe you're named after a relative of yours or maybe your name, you know, means something in a specific language or it represents um, a religious or ethnic identity. I mean, there's so much to come from those conversations. And those are the kinds of discussions that lead us into really recognizing the value and all the learning that comes from our beautiful diversity. So that's the first book. I, I love that book too. I, and listeners, you got to pick up a copy of that book. The illustrations are just so beautiful. Um, and I love this starting point of the name. And I think listeners, as I'm sure that they were thinking the same thing, you know, they, okay, what is my name origin? And I love that it's so universal and, you know, cultural that we do have that starting point. And I mean, I don't think we use one another's names often enough. And if you're an educator or I suppose just a person, right, mm-hmm. you really do take time to learn that. It really does impact us. And I I have a really funny, I think that's a funny example is that I was a a high school principal and I always wanted to make sure that I pronounced the names of my students every time they walk across the stage. And for me, it felt sacred. Like it was something that I just felt like I get to say these children's who are now adults names, their parents at some point toiled over it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what were they going to name this person? And it just felt very sacred to say their name as they had this major milestone. And I couldn't believe it when I had a conversation with one of the students and she said, I said her last name before the ceremony. And she said, oh, it's actually pronounced Dewitt, but you know, everybody always says do it around here. So we just say it's fine. It's do it. It's her last name. And I said, really? Well, that seems interesting. And, you know, so we had a conversation. I said, how would you like me to pronounce it? And she's like, well, would you pronounce it the right way? And I said, of course, <laughs> I'd love to. It'd be an honor, right? So, and then it got me thinking about that. Like how many of us have names that we just, you know, society either doesn't care enough to try to say it the right way, or it's just become such a natural thing. And so I love your story and how personal it is, Huda, and um, that you would share that with the world and lead in that way is a very good entry point for all of us, really. Thank you. Um, And I'll tell you, in the months since we've talked about, we met about a year ago, face to face, almost exactly as we're talking again. And I'll just never forget it. I just adore you. And I'm so grateful that I get to have you in my life. Likewise. Yes. One of the things I've been doing in the last several months, is, oh, I've been traveling more. And so um, that opens me up to a lot more diversity than just up here in the Northwestern part of Wisconsin. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I always make sure that, you know, when I have an encounter with a name that I'm not sure how to pronounce, I ask, for example, an Uber driver, I'll give you that example. And the last one that I had, he's like, you know, ma'am, nobody ever asks me how to pronounce that. Thank you. And I thought, well, Huda, thank you for bringing it to my attention, right? Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate those stories. And, you know, I agree. I think that a lot of people, um, they kind of, you know, I find a lot of people dismiss that as, one thing I think a lot of us have, if those people who do have their names mispronounced, they just get so used to it that they're just like, it's useless, hmm. you know? And then there's people whose names are so common that it's not anything that they ever have to deal with. So, you know, they just don't mm-hmm. really care much. But the the thing I try to show to people is that we can all benefit from talking about our names. You know, we can all learn from each other, even the most, you know, Mm -hmm. so-called common names. There's a history behind that name. You know, there's a reason you were given that name. There's a story there. And, you know, when it comes to people changing their names in order to fit in, I mean, that's, that's something to talk about. And I really do believe that for a great number of Americans, that story is present somewhere in their family history where there was a family member along the way who, you know, if they were immigrants to this country or, you know, just first generation Americans, there was a pressure of you shouldn't have a, you know, so-called foreign sounding name. So you need to change that name. And that's the way that you're going to succeed. You know, and I have found from just speaking to so many people that that story is a really common one. Uh, And then what do we lose from that, though? You know, when we just all decide that's it, like we just all need to be the same. You know, what are we losing? How much learning have we lost from just making that decision? You know, so I just I think it's a way to build understanding and knowledge and also empathy to realize we've all been impacted by bias one way or another, whether it was personally ourselves, whether it was our ancestors Because, you know, unless you are 100% indigenous Native American, then we're all descendants of immigrants, you know, or if it's just what we lost from other people not being able to share their story, you know, and what we could have capitalized on our diversity, you know, in that way, too. I want to geek out with you on this for an hour, because as I'm listening, I'm thinking... You know, even in our own stories, like in our own names, I love your name. It's so beautiful. And I love the, um, you know, the connections, those deep, meaningful connections. Mine is not. I, I'm the youngest of seven and my family always laughs because they were just plumb out of names by the time I came along. <laughs> and, and my husband had a beautiful name, though. Well, you know, it might have been the, you know, Social Security Administration's number one name in the birth year, but okay, I'm fine with it. I had five Sarahs in my class. <laughs> um, <laughs> So anyway, uh, but my husband, what you said, Huda, I think is so good. And just a moment of pause for anybody listening that hasn't engaged in this topic in your own life, let alone looking at, oh man, there's so many stories and multiple cultures that we could speak to this. But even my husband's last name, the man I married, were Johnson, but it actually was Johansson. Mm. And it got switched, you know, a couple generations back. But it, th- so that's just kind of fascinating to me too. And it's something he didn't even know about until probably, you know, his 20s, or maybe he didn't care about it, or I don't know. But that is, I think exactly what you're talking about is just, it'd be probably surprising for many of us to look back at our lineage um, 
and, and see some of yeah. those things. And, you know, okay, so I don't want to divert you too far from this topic, but I was just listening to a podcast by Austin Channing Brown. Have you ever heard of her? I have not, but I'm... I'm listening. She does a lot of work around, um, I don't even know if she would appreciate it if I called it racial reconciliation, but it's just an area that I've been spending a lot of time learning and in like learning about what my role is in interrupting racism and, you know, teaching myself so that I can basically take away this veil of white supremacy that I've grown up in. And, and it's an uncomfortable thing for people, you know, like white people, I guess, to talk about and listen to. And so I'm just doing a lot of work in that area. But I was listening to her and she was saying how this is more gender based, but she was saying how her parents named her Austin so that she would always get the interview. And I think it might be a good segue for us to talk about like the passion that you have in addition to leading on this, just this idea of leading women through implicit bias in society and in our own world and our own mindsets as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about your passion in that area? Yes. So uh, I've actually, I've heard that story from many people. You know, it's, it's interesting the stories that I've encountered when people just learn that I do some of this work <clears throat> focused on names. And, you know, I've met um, someone not too long ago. Her name was Jamie. Same thing. Mm. She said exactly the same thing of my, my parents chose that name for me purposefully, you know, because they didn't, they wanted me to, you know, not be passed up my resume. Right. So really similar story. And it wasn't the only one I've heard. And, you know, I think that, a lot of people are unaware of how much unconscious bias, which is a topic that I refer to a lot. And it's actually, um, you know, the topic of my, my book that I'm writing for educators. Uh, that I think a lot of people don't realize just how much that impacts our beliefs and our actions. And, uh, you know, using women as an example, mm -hmm. And that's a, a that's a perfect example, actually, the name on the resume. You know, if it's a woman's name, it might be more likely to be passed up because we've been taught this notion for so long of what a, you know, let's say a leader, if that person is position, uh, applying for a position of leadership, we've been taught a certain idea of what a leader looks like, you know, and a lot of times it's not a woman. You know, and it, that also applies to a lot of different careers as well. I know, you know, I've heard a lot of people who say, for example, when they have a female pilot flying their plane, they get really nervous. It's so out of the box thinking for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that we, uh, as women especially, need to recognize what are the biases that are there about women and how can we overcome them? First of all, ourselves, because a lot of women don't even realize how those unconscious biases we've been harboring have limited our own potential and also the potential of other women. Uh, so, you know, there is a really great website that I uh, refer people to, and it is called leanin.org. Mm -hmm. And it's really wonderful. It has just an abundance of resources focused on really empowering women and showing 
how unconscious biases get in the way. And uh, one of those things is how women ourselves, you know, the things that we do. So for example, uh, when it comes to applying for, you know, whether it's a new position or a self-evaluation that we write, uh, they've done, you know, this research and they found that women tend to judge themselves more harshly. And they're less likely to apply for a job unless they find that they meet 100% of the criteria that's asked for, where men go for it when they don't meet a lot of the criteria, but they've got that confidence of like, well, I'm just going to go for it. And, and we need to do the same. And then we're also holding other women back. Mm -hmm. And and again, without even realizing it sometimes, but unfortunately this is what happens with any group that is marginalized. You end up fighting for a smaller slice of the pie. So if we're looking at an organization and we say, okay, we have only recently seen women at the table for leadership in this organization. And it's, there's just this one or two seats that are there. We're fighting for those one or two seats. Unfortunately, it ends up breeding competition uh, where I really think that we need to help each other and recognize that this is beyond just an issue of gender. This is, this also translates into so many social identities where we can empathize with the limitations they face due to unconscious bias. And when we make those connections with people in various identities, some which might not even match up with that identity of being a woman, for example, if we have some men on our team, that's really powerful. You know, people tend to listen a little bit more, it seems, to people who don't share that identity of the oppressed group that they're speaking for. You know, when it is the oppressed group, it's, you know, often looked at as like, oh, here we go. You know, they're complaining or here's another emotional woman or, you know, when it comes to, you know, adding on other identities. Right. If we look at women who also are black, you know, if they say something, they deal with that stereotype of angry black woman. You know, so it makes it really hard if we only limit ourselves to just our one social identity. We really need to expand it and reach out to even more people so that we can really widen that base and make more of an impact. You've hit on so many heavy hitter, high powered, so interesting and important topics that I just wish we talked more about. I wish we spent more time on. Um, I think in education too, for a long time, it just felt like we just don't touch it. And I will share this one at a conversation that still kind of blows my mind a little bit, trying to do my part in this space. You know, the in Awe podcast is obviously one of those ways is I try to amplify women. It doesn't mean that I'm not um, interested in men's stories. It's just that I'm making space at a table for a wide range of voices. And I even trying to expand that further than like you said, one identity, like how do these intersect? Right. Mm -hmm. But I just find it so fascinating when I've had people literally say leadership is leadership. It doesn't, there's no difference between men and women. And I just, I feel like the quote that really sticks with me on this one is that we can't dismantle systems if we're not willing to first recognize that they exist. Yes. And actually, you know, there's data that shows how organizations that focus on a system of meritocracy where it's all just merit-based and they're ignoring 
any other influences involved like bias, like oppression, you know, that systematic, you know, inequities when they just ignore that and they say, nope, we're just going to focus on, you know, it's just merit based. They usually have the most biases present there you know, and the least amount of true inclusion. So, you know, you have such a wonderful passion and a wealth of information here inside your mind and in your brain. So I want to make sure that I pick a couple things from you. And, and, you know, if it gets too vulnerable, then that's, you know, obviously leave it at the table and tell me and that's fine. But I'm just curious as a, a leadership person, right? Like you've launched out, you've, you've been a creative, you write books, you speak to organizations, you have your own business. Are there any particular biases that you've encountered that have just like stuck with you (laughs) and maybe some, you know, hope for how you can overcome them? Yes. So are you, well, let me ask you this because I I encounter, you know, people share biases all the time. These things, they come up and, and actually I really appreciate, truly, I know it sounds strange, but I appreciate when people are vulnerable enough to say what they're thinking um, and be willing to, you know, listen to mm-hmm. why they may have, you know, misinformation or have been misled. So do you mean in um, biases just overall in general in regards to a lot of different groups or towards me personally? Thank you. So let me direct that. As a woman in leadership and as a business owner, how do you have some that you've faced and overcome that you think would benefit for the listeners to hear about? You know, I think that more than being a woman, I've dealt with uh, more uh, biases and prejudices due to my other identities. Uh, And, you know, there's intersectionality, right? So it's, it's all kind of related. So it's, you know, being not just a woman, but being a Muslim woman, and being a Muslim woman who dresses in hijab, and, you know, the stereotypes that people have about that. So it's it's more than one mm-hmm. thing, you know. So it's it's what do we what have we been exposed to about Muslim women who dress the way that I do? And for many people, it symbolizes oppression to them. And and that's what causes some biases, you know, and I've had I've had people admit to me that they would sign up for mm-hmm. a workshop that I was facilitating, they would register and they'd show up and they'd be really shocked when they would see me standing at the front of the room. And those who stuck through though, you know, and stayed, because I I don't doubt that some people leave, you know, upon seeing that, unfortunately. Uh, But those who do stick through have told me and when when they've shared that information with me, they end up saying, I was really surprised because I did learn so much and it was really unexpected, the things that you said. And I just, I actually really wish more people would attend, you know, your workshops and listen to what you have to say, because I think that it would change some of those negative misconceptions that we've been taught about what a woman like you represents. Mm. I am so glad you went there, Huda. And so can you talk to me just a little bit then and have the listeners learn, what if some of my listeners were thinking the same thing? Why do you dress with a hijab? Do you want to share and teach us a little bit about that? I'll tell you. So I was born and raised in Michigan and, you know, American born. And I was really, you know, even though I lived in a Muslim household, I was exposed to the limited and oftentimes very negative representation 
uh, of Muslim women in, you know, in our media. And um, it was just really limited. So I actually grew up truly saying like, ah, you know, I don't see myself dressing that way, you know, anytime soon, maybe like when I'm much older, like maybe on my deathbed. I would really say that because I viewed it similarly to other people. And that's the thing. I think, you know, just because you identify with a religion and you believe in that as being, you know, your religion of choice, it doesn't mean that you're an expert on that topic and every topic, you know, under that umbrella of that religion. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, later, this was actually in my early 30s, I was assigned to a school building where I was the only Muslim on staff. There were a significant number of Muslim students, and it was this relatively new population at that school. So I ended up, you know, not really realizing this was going to be the case, but it was the case that I was kind of the go-to Muslim resource, you know, of all questions about, you know, Muslims and uh, which is not a lonely story. You know, a lot of people who Mm -hmm. identify with a marginalized group when they are the only one or one of a small number on staff, they become that representation of a huge group of people. There's a lot of pressure, you know, and in my case, I was, you know, serving as, you know, representing basically like about a quarter of the world's population. It was pretty heavy. (laughs) So, but I did feel like for those students and their families and for the educators that I worked with, I mean, they truly, you know, they really just wanted to know, they wanted to be educated. So I felt this responsibility of if I'm going to answer their questions, I need to make very sure that I'm not mixing up culture with religion. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people do that, you know, even in terms of, you know, what we're exposed to, for example, in the media, a lot of times we've got this limited view of, you know, women in Saudi Arabia, for example, Well, there's about 50 Muslim majority countries in the world, and not every country has the same culture as Saudi Arabians. You know, they have their own culture. So sometimes what we're exposed to, people assume, well, that must be a Muslim thing, but it's a Saudi Arabian thing, you know. So anyhow, I started doing my learning and uh, wanted to make sure I was getting the facts straight. And I knew that, you know, questions about hijab were things that were going to come up. And they did. Uh, so I really started to look into that. And through that research, I, you know, surprisingly, I actually found that the reasonings were things that made a lot of sense to me for why women are um, asked to dress in hijab uh, in Islam. And uh, it actually spoke to my sense of feminism and women's empowerment, because the goal was is really not focused on oppressing women. It's actually, I found it to be something to liberate women, because it's taking away that view of, you know, women's physical uh, appearance as being the most important thing. You know, so, for example, uh, you know, people say a woman whose body and her hair and ultimately her sexuality is oppressed 
uh, you know, if she's covered, you know, what are we saying oppression really means, you know, because if oppression is someone's power is being taken away, right? So if we're saying that her body and her hair and, you know, her beauty and adornment, uh, which is referred to in many religions, you know, is covered, then her power is gone. And then where are we saying a woman derives her power from? Mm. So I really looked at it and said, wow, this is really taking, it's really making people kind of have to think about my intellect and my intelligence and making, you know, what I have to say and my actions be the first thing they think about. And, you know, and it's not, I don't have any kind of judgment about any woman with what she decides to wear. And I think every woman should be judged on, you know, her intelligence and her actions and what she can contribute to a conversation and to society. And, you know, even in my family, I have two sisters and I'm the only one who dresses this way. You know, they don't. And it's their prerogative. It's their choice, you know. But through that experience, I ended up little by little, I just started to dress more and more modestly. And eventually, you know, I decided that this is something that I'm ready for and I really want to do this. And truly, my family, you know, their response, Sarah, was, Are you crazy? Like now? Mm-hmm. You're going to do this now, you know, with everything that's happening in the world and all the biases people have against Muslims. And you're going to go out and you're going to wear that, you know, and represent that and basically say, I'm a Muslim, you know, just by the way that I dress. And so they were, you know, it was it wasn't they weren't agreeing with me. You know, they agreed. They understood why and they agreed with the idea, but they were just really afraid for me. And I understand their fear, but you know, I, this is what I believe in. And I know that I have to face some obstacles because of people's ignorance about it, unfortunately, but it's worth it to me. And I think that, you know, that in itself, again, not a lonely story. So many Muslim women who dress in hijab, especially living in the Western world, you know, have that same feeling and face those same challenges, which is completely opposite of people's idea that these women are timid and oppressed because they're actually pretty fearless to say, this is what I believe in and this is what makes sense to me and I'm going to do it. You know, and I, I also think that people don't realize how a woman in hijab, if you really think about it, you know, how different is the way she dresses from the way the, you know, a nun dresses or, you know, an Orthodox Jewish woman or, uh, you know, a woman wearing traditional Hindu clothing, you know, or traditional African dress, you know, they cover their hair oftentimes. They're wearing loose, you know, clothing and dresses. And, you know, I think people don't make those connections, which is part of why I wrote my second children's book, which is almost a completely wordless book uh, that really symbolizes these commonalities that are there that I think that people don't always think about. And something I often talk to people about is, you know, Muslim women dress the way Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary dressed, you know, and Muslims view Mary as being the greatest woman to have ever walked the earth. There's actually an entire like chapter in the Quran called Maryam, which is Mary in Arabic. 
you know, so it's just, I think when people gain the knowledge and, and that's with anything having to do with bias and minimal representation, when they gain the knowledge, they are able to view things uh, more clearly. And then we start to make those connections and realize actually, you know, there's a lot of people that can connect with that and we're going to respect each other's choices and understand that it's not what it always is portrayed to be. I hope that all makes sense. Well, it makes a ton of sense to me, Huda. And I'm so grateful that we got to be able to hear just a sliver of your vast knowledge um, and passion on this topic because you teach me every time we talk. I know that my listeners are gaining. As I listen, I, I was just running through all kinds of things that have challenged and grown me ever since we talked last. And I just... I pray that people listening are hearing you and realizing that there's so much that we don't know. And I love how you shared just having the pressure of that representation of a one sliver of, you know, you're a one sliver of the religion that you were mentioning and what the difference between culture and religion. And I'll tell you, I, I say this, and I've said this so many times in the last year of my life after publishing Lead with Faith is like, the more I know, the more I know I don't know, um, you know, about Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Like to, for anybody to say they know everything is just nuts to me. <laughs> yes. Mentioned this because I had shared it with you privately. And listeners, I think this is just a really great resource to look at. If this conversation has sparked in you, um, you know, like a desire, if your chest is kind of pounding right now and you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to this. I think that there's some, there's a message here for you. And there's a woman that wrote a book uh, called Holy Envy and her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And I just think she does such a beautiful job of very respectfully um, going through the idea of looking through the lens of everyone else's religion and then holding tighter to your own faith through that. Because it, it, I think ignorance comes out of fear. Is that true? Is that what you found in life too? Oh, yes. Right? Yes. I, it's, you know, it's fear and uh, which, you know, breeds xenophobia. Uh, but that ignorance truly, I think a lot of times it's, um, it's honestly, I, I actually think it's a lot of things. Sarah, it's not just fear. There's also sometimes there's privilege involved of like, (laughs) why do I need to even learn that? Like, you know, they don't see it as being a benefit to them of learning. Um, And then it's taught hate, you know, Mm. so many people have been taught to just hate what they don't know. So it's not just fear, you know, it's so it's really complex, you know, but I completely agree with you about, you know, gaining that knowledge. Um, people often, so I, I often do workshops um, specifically about increasing understanding of Muslims. And my main point in that is for people to recognize just how similar mm-hmm. Islam and Christianity are. Because most Americans identify with a religion and most of them identify with a religion under the umbrella of Christianity. So it's just what makes, you know, is more um, relatable. It's using background knowledge. Uh, And people are always surprised with what they learn. Uh, and, And it's pleasant surprises because it's like, oh, you know, if I learned this and I and I realized like I really been misled in a lot of ways. And I have all these biases that I didn't even realize were biases um, that caused, you know, fear and hatred. If I learn all of this from learning from this one workshop, how much could I learn about other groups of people who I also have, you know, misinformation about or negative beliefs about? 
And it encourages them to have those conversations with more people. What a powerful mission you are on, Huda. It's really important. And I'm just so proud of you, um, you know, for leading your ship and pressing forward and serving. You know, this is so much, it's so beyond you. You know, it's not just about what you do for a living. It's what you do for your mission in life. And I'm, I'm grateful for you, truly. Thank you, Sarah. And I truly feel the same way about you. But uh, I just want to thank you again for you really have educated us. We just haven't had this conversation. Um, you know, there's so much more that we could go into, but I, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the two standard questions that I have on this podcast and we'll see where we can get um, from there. Does that sound good? Okay. So the first one I have is if you could write a letter to yourself at any age or stage, what would you say? I would probably go back to my very younger self, like my, my single digit years of life. Uh, and, and just have a talk with that little girl and tell her to really just be proud of all that makes you, you, and to understand that different is not bad. Uh, accepting and being proud of what makes us so-called different actually allows others to do the same because we're all different in our own ways. Uh, And then we have a greater ability to learn more from one another through not only our differences, but also what we have in common. You know, I, I often think about this actually, Sarah, and I, I just, I think about the losses that I suffered as a child because I felt ashamed of some of my identities that seemed different in the community I grew up in. And I had lowered self-esteem. I felt inadequate and ashamed of things that I am now very proud of and wish I was encouraged to be more proud of as a child. I also consider the loss of my peers and even my teachers because I didn't talk about my differences. You know, what learning did they miss out on? Could they have become more empathetic and worldly and culturally competent as a result of what I had to share? I wholeheartedly believe that if my teachers were taught the importance of culturally responsive practices themselves, we would have all benefited from that. You know, too many people still today are dismissing that responsibility without realizing that the omission of those discussions and that learning can be just as powerful as when we do make it a priority. But that powerful impact of silence around those issues will have negative outcomes when confront when confronting them would actually lead to the opposite. You know, so I would really encourage that little girl to be proud. And I and I hope that I can do that with, you know, every person. I'll be proud of who you are and share that and be willing to have those discussions because we can all benefit from it. Well, I guarantee you that she is very proud of who you've become. I, I know I am for sure. Okay. So how about this one? If you, if you know that there's a listener out there that's finding themselves in a pit of fear or doubt, and they just need to hear Huda's beautiful voice to help lift them up out of it, what do you think you could say? I would tell them to stay focused on your why. You know, make sure that you are, that you've chosen a mission that you have an unwavering passion for. Because that really, that's going to drive your ability to share your message with anyone who will listen. And and don't let the naysayers bring you down. You know, I've, I've had that throughout building this career where, you know, people would say no and there was negative negativity I would sometimes face. And I'm so happy now that I did not let those bumps in the road stop me from what I'm doing today. 
There are a lot of people in this world that you will surely find who share your passion, you know, and will want to collaborate with you. So I highly recommend connecting with others who have been there and succeeded. Uh, We have so much to learn from others. And I am so thankful for the people who have impacted my life um, and have helped me to get to where I am today through the knowledge and wisdom that they shared. So we really just need to tap into that human capital that we have access to and believe that it will sometimes show up in the most unexpected (laughs) places. So keep your eyes, ears, and minds open to the possibilities and and believe in yourself because you can do it. All I could do was smile so widely when you said it'll show up in the most unexpected of places. And I'm just thinking about sitting across from you at a dinner table at ASCD last year at exactly this time. And you're one of those people for me. You really are, Huda. I'm so grateful for you. I feel the same about you, Sarah. Thank you so much for for not just this conversation and for being an amazing friend, but just for, for this work that you do. I know that you're making a really great impact in the lives of so many people and that, that impact will reverberate. And I'm just, I'm really honored to know you. So thank you. Well, thank you, Huda. And thank you for coming on to this show and letting me share your incredible leadership story. Thanks. I continue to be completely awe-inspired by every single guest on this podcast, and I am so grateful every time you choose to share, rate, review an episode. It matters so greatly to the mission and the message of our guests, and I appreciate every time you help one another rise by lifting up the message. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you being a part of this awe-inspiring community.